This is Crescent Project Radio, bringing you powerful testimony, practical teaching, and exciting truth about God's miraculous movement in the Muslim world and how we as Christians can join Him in this kingdom work. Our goal is to see every Muslim have an opportunity to respond to the gospel and be connected to a true follower of Jesus. You can find us online at crescentproject.org. Have a comment or question? Email them to radio at crescentproject.org. We would love to hear from you and have a chance to respond on a future program. Millions of people from unreached people groups around the world are coming to the West as refugees, immigrants, and international students, creating an unprecedented opportunity for followers of Jesus to share the gospel with Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and others who may have never heard it before. But this type of cross-cultural ministry comes with many challenges and requires a great deal of wisdom and insight. Today, our guests are two people who have been working to equip the church to reach out effectively to the global diaspora. John Baxter is the Director of Diaspora Initiatives for the international church planning movement Converge and also leads diaspora missions training in North and South America with the Global Diaspora Network of the Lausanne Movement. Jeff Moody has been a missions mobilizer for over a decade, first as a missions pastor, where he helped develop partnerships with missions organizations in eight countries, and now with Frontier Ventures, which is well known for the Perspectives on the World Christian Movement course. Together, John and Jeff lead Next Move, which is a ministry partnership between Converge and Frontier Ventures. They help mission agencies and denominations to address roadblocks to effective ministry with migrating people groups. John, Jeff, welcome to Crescent Project Radio. Hi, Rashida. Thanks for having us on the call today. Yeah, it's great to be here. So first, let's lay the foundation for our conversation by talking about the diaspora. Who is the diaspora, and what are the different categories of people within the diaspora? Well, you've asked a pretty complicated question that a lot of scholars fight over, the the meaning of the term. So I think what we'll do is think about it in terms of missions, because that's our our primary interest. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we've done is, is to try not to get tangled up in all the the weeds of terminology and think about what's important for churches and mission groups. And when we do that, we come up more with a, a set of descriptors instead of a definition. But we think, first of all, that it, it involves movement. Uh, people are on the move away from their cultural homeland, the place that helps them define who they are and, and gives them an idea of where how they're situated in the world. They can be moving out of the political country. So let's say it's, it's a Han Chinese from Beijing. He could move to Los Angeles or to London, but also he could move within his country. So if he's from Beijing, if he moved out to the Western Turkic speaking provinces, he would be in a completely different uh, cultural space. Mm-hmm. And the numbers of those who move out of their political countries are somewhere north of 260 million people, but those 
who are moving within their country, that's hard to, to quantify, but it's hundreds of millions of people uh, are moving from where they feel at home to where they don't feel at home. Hmm. So for us, the diaspora first has movement, and then it has a sense of a of an identity bond back to that homeland. So um, if this Chinese person is in London, he still knows that that he's from a Chinese people group, and his identity is essentially connected back to that cultural homeland. So there's an identity link, a, a personal and group identity link. The third characteristic that we find interesting is that now they feel some sort of uh, emotional sense of dislocation. Mm-hmm. They, they know they're not quite home. And that sense of dislocation can go from pleasant, like an international student having the thrill of being in a new place, to something that's just absolutely traumatizing, such as a, as a refugee driven from their home because of, of war. But that sense of dislocation then really creates two mission values that we're very interested in. One is, is access. As they move out of their cultural homeland, it may increase access for us to them and for them to the gospel. And not only just proximity of the gospel coming closer, but the environment may be of, of greater safety uh, for someone to be communicating the gospel. And then the second is, is, is a sense of openness. When people move from their cultural homeland, they're often open to new ideas, new friendships. Mm-hmm. And so there may be a chance uh, for them to want to listen to the gospel in ways that, that if they were still situated, you know, locked into all those old relationships, uh, that they might not want to hear. So those are the characteristics that we're interested in. Jeff, did you want to talk yeah, about like, the categories like forced or voluntary, things like that? Well, I was just going to make a comment that I've really appreciated as we've done our work in Next Move. I've really appreciated this really pragmatic approach like John started with. Like we really don't want to just get caught up in needing to define things too much, but how does this affect the work that we're seeking to do? How does it affect the kingdom and and the movement of the gospel? So I would just go back and emphasize what John said, where we're not really looking for definition, but we are looking for description. If we can just do some describers, that seems like enough to to give it a direction. I think that's really important. The other thing that I would comment on is this whole idea of self-identifying. You know, I've joked about it before. It's almost like people, when they're in the diaspora, it's almost like you need a little a little slider scale, you know, or a dial or something where they can have these four or five different identifiers and they get to kind of set, you know, okay, how much, how much affinity or connection do I still feel with my original culture? How open, et cetera, you know? And, and all of that really is person by person by person. It's not something that, quote unquote, we you know, can establish for someone. It's really a very personal thing where they really need to kind of identify if and how they would see themselves as a diaspora sort of dislocated person or not. And John, you were commenting about, I guess, types or categories. Are you speaking more in terms of like the things that kind of like drive people into the diaspora in the first place? Yeah, I, I think the two big categories are, you know, voluntary and involuntary you know that's that's the main divider. So your your refugees, uh, whether from war or natural uh, disasters, 
displaced persons would be in that involuntary category. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, most often they're facing some level of, of need and trauma. On the voluntary side, you know, you have uh, international students and professional business people, you know, who are looking for greater opportunity. And, uh, you know, they're usually, you know, there's an openness there. Uh, sometimes there's even enjoyment of finding new places. But sliding down that voluntary, more towards involuntary or sort of your your huge majority world migrating labor force. And while, yes, they choose to go find work overseas, there's often a push from um, poverty or other difficulties in the homeland um, that are making them seek work. It's not their first choice to have to go and find work away from their, their home and their families, their children. So it's always on a continuum. Mm-hmm. But those are, you know, the, the large sorts of, of categories. Yeah, it's interesting because we talked about openness and access, and you would think, and John, just correct me if, if I'm wrong, but you would think that, as you mentioned, you know, voluntary would put people perhaps more on the side of openness, but that may not always be true. You know, you may have international students who are going abroad to study, but they are very much more interested in staying with maybe their own quote unquote types of people that they connect with while there or otherwise, you know, so even the, even the voluntary versus involuntary doesn't necessarily automatically always translate over into openness. You know, you, again, you may have people that are very eager to integrate into or learn more about the new culture that they're in, entering into with a lot of excitement. Or again, you might have people very devoted to kind of being within a bit of an enclave and they don't really want to connect with the new place that they are. So again, there's just a lot of it depends factors when you start talking about this whole subject of the diaspora. Right. Yeah. Each context, each location is is unique and and has to have specific, you know, strategies to reach them. People don't respond, you know, universally the same way in the diaspora. You may have the same people group in one location that's very enclaved, you know, don't really want to assimilate. And yet that same people group in another urban setting may be very open. Many of the factors are the the environment around them, how the the indigenous people in that location, how open they are to outsiders, how welcoming they are. So everything we say has to be sort of tested in each specific context. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's important to know about the diaspora. So true. Thank you for those caveats. Let's talk a little bit more about that continuum of cultural adaptation that you've both been referring to and the implications for ministry. Um, what are some other things that we should consider? Well, in any uh, location, we usually find four sorts of attitudes about their new environment there. First of all, there are people who just don't want to be there and they want to get home as fast as possible, get back to their homeland. Then we'll have a group that realizes that they're going to be there. This is their new home, but they want to stay tightly bound to the old culture and the, and the old ways. They may even be resistant to learning the, the new language. And then you have a group that's ready uh, to broaden their cultural horizons, 
they don't necessarily want to give up being um, identified with the old country, but now they want to add the new country or often have a hyphen name, you know, like they are a, a Vietnamese American. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're, they're usually uh, far more open. And then we have those who just want to become, in a sense, new globalized citizens. They see the diaspora as their home. And even though they may be in one city like New York City, their future may include living in London or in Singapore. And in a sense, they've joined a whole new people group. It's the, it's the people of the diaspora. And these changes about, and, and they really are about self and, and group identity, who people see themselves as, those changes are um, dramatically affected uh, generationally. There's always change in cultures with new generations, but but we say that generational change happens like on steroids in the diaspora, so that parents sometimes have a very difficult time recognizing who their children are just uh, in, in one generation as they move into a new context. So those sorts of identity change, how much they want to open themselves up to a new culture and, and what happens in the generations are huge factors in the diaspora. Yeah, and I would say just, you know, from a from a ministry standpoint, I know this just sounds really, really simple, but I mean, many people listening have probably experienced the same thing. But man, just listening to people, you know, asking, especially when you start to build a bit of a relationship, you start to develop some trust for one another, asking really good questions and listening to what comes out of people's hearts as to how they frame themselves, how they're struggling. Um, that really goes a long way. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, we really are human beings looking for relationship, you know? So, and I know that has to be navigated well with cultural pictures in mind and resistance versus acceptance and openness and everything. But well, there's just real power in loving people authentically and listening to people authentically. Absolutely. Thank you for giving us a better understanding of the context that people are coming out of and the attitudes and just all the changes that can have a wide range of experiences. Mm-hmm. So now let's talk a little bit more about diaspora missions itself. Mm-hmm. What are some of the common strategies for outreach? Well, uh, first of all, we have to break it down into two important distinctions. Uh, the diaspora allows us opportunities for missions to the diaspora, people who are on the move. So when unreached people groups move into contact with the church mm-hmm. and the church has an opportunity to reach out to them with the gospel, that's missions too. But there's a whole nother aspect of diaspora missions, which has a great potential for the, the Great Commission, and that's missions from the diaspora. And it could be that Uh, Unreached groups who move into contact with the gospel, hear about Christ, become uh, Jesus' followers, and then they themselves return back to uh, their homeland culture. That is a type of missions from the diaspora. But but perhaps even more important and with greater mission potential is this vast uh, movement of the majority world church throughout the world not just into the restricted access countries of like the 1040 window. So 
You have uh, Filipino workers finding jobs in Saudi Arabia or Nigerian finding work uh, alongside of uh, Syrian refugees in, in urban centers in Europe. Mm-hmm. But you, uh, you have the, the church moving throughout the world, coming into contact with the diaspora perhaps in the people's homeland, as I said, Filipinos moving in into Saudi Arabia or coming into contact with unreached groups as the unreached groups are in diaspora, Nigerians coming alongside of Syrians in Europe. This may hold actually the greatest value and potential for diaspora missions, that distinction between to and from. Both are important, uh, but we shouldn't overlook the, the from and just and only see the two. I'm just going to wrap back around and talk a little bit more about this whole idea of the ministry to the diaspora. And Rashida, you had asked what are some of the common, you know, ministry techniques or the ministry styles with that, you know, especially in our North American context. Um, there's a lot of people who will do English, English language opportunities. That's a pretty common thing. Um, here, I particularly live in Gainesville, Florida, so I'm in a in a university community with just thousands of internationals who have moved into our community. So there is a certain population of international students, um, Chinese students largely, who need and are very drawn by the English language factor. There's an, a whole entire population of international students who, who don't need English for the Indian population here, for example. And so that's not that particularly, you know, big of a draw. So how do you connect? You know, sometimes just just some simple friendship programs that ministries will put together where, you know, one of the pr- programs that I participate in, they their thing, they say, pray every day, contact once a week and see in person once a month. And that's the ask for you as an American to connect with an international student. So I've got a Saudi Arabian young man that we go have coffee and lunch and just spend time talking about our faiths and uh, learning about one another. So again, just even straight friendship programs the the more difficult and and painful people's situations get you know with um refugees immigrants you know there's there's mm-hmm. emotional trauma healing a lot of times that can be offered there's just simple adjustment types of welcoming committee types of things to help them assimilate into the culture getting driver's licenses you know all very common things that you hear about when you're involved in diaspora ministry. Um, yeah, some some people get involved even in things like helping people wade through and weed through some of the government implications, you know, legal implications. So there's there's a lot of different opportunities depending on what people's scenario is that has put them into the diaspora, all in that um, ministry to category. Take it outside of the North American context and you've got, you know, refugee camps and um, all of the emotional and physical and medical um, educational needs that, that that brings on. So again, those are just some of the ideas of, of the ministry to the diaspora. And then, you know, John mentioned this thing about, about the diaspora itself being the ministry force, if you will. You know, when, when you're involved in this a lot, you hear all these wonderful stories about, you know, um, Filipina nannies who are reading Bible stories to 
you know, Saudi children at night as they're putting kids to bed, serving in homes wow. or, um, you know, day laborers, workers who have just gone as construction workers in some high rise city, but they're going with Jesus. You know, they're going with not only the gospel, but they're going with an understanding, a trained understanding of how to make cross-cultural disciples in the context in which they find themselves. So that's this whole, you know, from or with the diaspora side that a lot of times, just very honestly, um, John and I feel like we spend a lot of time reminding people about the latent potential missions impact of that whole population that a lot of our current ministry and missions resources don't even touch. We don't, we don't even sometimes even know how to help those folks, you know, be more equipped and more empowered and more sent with better resources. So, um, yeah, so those are just some of the things that I was thinking of as, as John was talking about these broad categories, just kind of some of the more practical implications of what this ministry in the context of to the diaspora look like versus what it might look like if we're talking about from or, or with in some way. I would uh, like to add a couple things about missions to the diaspora, uh, particularly in, in the Western context in North America. We have a great potential you know, harvest, uh, missions harvest force in our, in our local churches. And uh, many of them are, are engaged. Some are still fearful. And uh, hopefully we like to help them move from fear to loving engagement. But we have a lot of churches that are, you know, reaching out, as Jeff was talking about, in these sorts of ministries, ESL classes, tutoring. These sorts of ministries, uh, I would call church-focused ministries. In other words, they, they come out mm-hmm. as an expression from the church. And they're wonderful. They, In a sense, they play the the beautiful music of the gospel. They tell the immigrant community, Christians actually care about you. Mm-hmm. The, the major problem with these ministries is they're usually extractional in the sense that if someone does come to Christ, there's, there's no other pathway for growth or, or discipleship except for them to come out of their community and become part of this new Anglo church, whatever, Hispanic church culture. And in doing so, we often create uh, a cultural psychological barrier. Mm-hmm. What if what if we could help create indigenously led, culturally relevant uh, movements of gospel multiplication uh, within those communities? So the, the, the ministries wouldn't be overtly uh, church focused or coming out of churches but they would arise naturally uh, within that community. That's a, that's a skill level that most of our American churches uh, right now don't possess. And that's where if we could, if we could leverage the strengths of uh, practitioner communities and mission agencies, uh, groups like the, the Crescent Project, they're able to come alongside the local church. Mm-hmm and help mobilize a few of their people, train a few of their people to be embedded in communities, had the, the, the skill set and the training and the support so that they could live their faith out loud in that context with the people, asking God to raise up those persons of peace 
who will become Christ's followers and also then become leaders of most likely simple church networks within the community. I think we'd have a, a greater potential of actually seeing those communities reach. But both are necessary. We need the churches to, mm. like I said, to play that music, to, to demonstrate that, that Christians do care. And then we need the strengths of, of practitioner communities, mission agencies coming alongside the church to help create those indigenous movements of gospel multiplication. That's something that's not happening on a large scale uh, yet in North America. We do have we do have some ministries, but they're more independent from churches that are that are doing this sort of simple church outreach. But to to bring both of these worlds together, I think is uh, really a key for diaspora uh, missions in North America that hopefully we'll see greater growth in as the years go by. So, John, just to kind of make that practical with a living example. So I've got this Saudi friend that I'm connecting with, not really particularly under any umbrella. It doesn't look like church. It looks like us going and having coffee together, right, where we're just hanging out and talking about our faiths. I got connected up with him because of a campus ministry. Let's say that this young man starts demonstrating an interest in in Jesus and makes a decision to become a disciple of Jesus. What I'm hearing you say is that's kind of decision point right there at that moment, right? Like when when he starts to to really genuinely make a decision to become a disciple, you know, quote unquote, what do, what do we do with him at that point? And as am I tracking with you that that's kind of what you're saying is is what's our response then? Do it, does it look like just putting him towards an American church or do we look for some way to maybe form a community that feels a whole lot more natural to the way that he would express his faith. Yeah, that that's definitely part of it. But you could argue, Jeff, you could even go back uh, prior to that. Uh, we know that in some uh, religious affinity people groups, decisions for the gospel don't occur in the same way they do, they yeah. do in the West. That's good. And in um, many of these groups, there's a sense in which we disciple them to faith. You know, we say, you know, come and follow Jesus, come and see, like he said to his disciples. And in that, in that process of discovering who Jesus is and hopefully done in a, in a culturally relevant way, uh, people in a sense begin to follow and come to faith. And again, most of our, American churches, uh, that's not the pattern of coming to faith. Usually we, we seek a conversion and then discipleship. So there's a skill set that's not shared widely in our, in our present churches. And uh, that's not a criticism. They, they haven't needed to have that in the past. So again, we need to, we need to bring together these two realms and leverage their strengths together Mission agencies that are used to working in these discipleship-making movement contexts, discovery, you know, Bible study contexts, how can they come alongside the local churches and help them move towards culturally appropriate evangelism and discipleship and then ongoing fellowships creation that keeps people in their communities and, and are non-extractional? So I agree with you, Jeff. Yeah, it can happen at the moment of decision. But very often it happens well before that moment. And do you have any specific examples of of what that might look like 
in a particular context in a city or in a community? An example of, of what, what might look like Rashida? Specifically what he's talking about, the second model. So we, we have lots of examples of oh, I'm with you now. being reached through an ESL ministry or through a friendship or, you know, where it's an individual apart from their family and their community. But do we, do we know of any examples of, you know, mission agencies working alongside Diaspora peoples themselves. Them. Oh, I see. I see. I'm with you now. Yeah, where that really where an effective, where a missions agency is working alongside of a church to really help them do mm-hmm. this more fully, right? Yes. I can at least speak in two different directions, and John may have, have other ideas as well. I, I know just as we've done our work in Next Move, this is one of the complexities and the pitfalls or challenges that comes up is okay, so now you've got mission agencies who are looking at placing teams formally in cities with diaspora populations, right? And then, so obviously you're in North America, so you're placing a mission band team in a city that already has churches established. You know, sometimes even ethnic churches, what we would call ethnic churches from like maybe right. maybe you're uh, maybe you're an AIM team with Africa Inland Mission, right? And you're wanting to reach out to to Muslim Africans in a, in an area and maybe there's already even African churches there of believers already formed. What we hear back from a lot of our reps representatives that we work with, they're finding it very difficult to come alongside and partner with established local churches at times. Probably multiple different reasons why, but there is a there's a miss in that somewhere of being able to really figure out how to partner effectively together. So that's kind of on the negative side. There are some that are experiencing that, that we just can't figure out how to how to do this well with one another. On the positive side, I mean an example comes to mind right away of a guy who who is actually with a major mission organization for his official like umbrella, but he's also the mission pastor at a church up in the Northeast part of the United States. So he's kind of very purposefully, you know, in an actual role to integrate those, try to integrate those two things together, bring some of the expertise that he has from being involved in a mission agency and bring that into a local church context. So it's, it's probably both and like so many other things are, but I know it can be a real challenge at times to figure out how to do that effectively with one another. You, John, you, I'm thinking about your city strategy stuff that you guys are doing because you're a denominational mission agency. So you're a mission agency, yes, but you're a mission agency that ties directly to local churches by your very existence. Yeah, Jeff, I, I think that in some ways is a help for us as opposed to a, a more independent agency, let's say like Pioneers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we have already a, a family of churches. I'm in uh, Converge, the old Baptist General Conference. We have 1,400 churches um, across the United States, and then a sister denomination in Canada. So I have access, easier access to these churches. And so we in, in Converge have uh, created what we call a, a city strategy. And there we actually place some of our uh, global staff. Typically, it's because they've had to come home for health reasons back to the United States. I don't, we don't usually pull people out of cultural homelands, but if they're coming back, we will can assign them an, an urban center, a city. Right now, uh, we have a team in the Twin Cities, and their job 
is to, first of all, work with our local churches uh, to build leadership within those churches for diaspora ministry, diaspora ministry on that, that church focused level. And then to, to bring uh, those churches into a, a cooperative sphere where they identify and together begin to plant teams within communities for that, that other level of outreach, that, that indigenously led non-extractional community focused, unreached community focused. And so we, we actually are in that process of leveraging the, the, our strength and experience of, of working cross-culturally and in simple church context uh, overseas with our, our local churches. And I don't if any, if any other groups would like to just to see what we're doing, we, uh, we'd love to, to share with them uh, how that's going. So there is, I know of at least one example, our own denomination in which we're doing that. It, I agree with Jeff. It probably is a little more difficult if you're an independent mission agency. Uh, you're probably going to have to work a little harder at bringing churches into that sphere. A colleague of ours in Next Move, Nate Schultz, and I and a couple of the people worked on a, a plan called the Omega Challenge. And we it's kind of speaking to this very thing that you're asking about, Rashida. We've we tried, especially in urban centers, you know, where you've got a larger population of people um, and a and a higher concentration of a of a perhaps a diaspora people group, you know, we kind of thought of it as puzzle pieces. What are all of the puzzle pieces that need to come together for perhaps an effective outreach to come together to not only reach a diaspora people group, but then perhaps to even have that reaching out to them? tie to a homeland, you know, where they, that could even connect back into the homeland itself. And yeah, we see, you know, the, the mission agency presence, the local church presence, the diaspora people group presence itself, you know, all as a part of that. So we, that's one of the efforts that we try to do with this Omega Challenge is how could we maybe get kind of a common language or a common platform that could bring in these practitioner communities as well? You know, people that they're not necessarily going to wait around on their, their local church to, to do any, anything or understand. They're just going to go meet Muslims and love them, you know, and they may not have a whole lot of, you know, connection or whatever. So how do you bring those different audiences together on kind of a common template a common language, common platform, and try to kind of have a champion that could work with a group and, and see some kind of cohesive response come together. And it's something that we've tried in a couple of contexts. Um, I feel like John's city strategy that's unfolding within the context of his denomination is kind of a borrow or a more for a, it's a similarity to that um, Omega Challenge plan. But um, it's something that we have, you know, we've put some tools together. We've got a little booklet, kind of an outline of how the process could go. Um, you know, if that would be something in the audience someone might be interested in, we've put some thought into that of how an expression of that might shake out, you know, in a city. Well, this is a great point to wrap up part one of our conversation. And I know we still have a lot of ground to cover. In the meantime, if you'd like to learn more about John and Jeff's ministry, Next Move, you can visit their website at nextmove.net. Jeff, would you mind closing us in prayer? Sure. Lord, thank you so much, first of all, for your heart for the downcast and the oppressed and the poor and the needy and the broken. 
And your 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 place in scripture for that is just it is so clear of how you have your eyes and you have your heart on um on yeah, on this particular part of our human race. So we want to share that heart along with you, Lord. And I pray as we talk about strategies and categorization and labels and descriptions that we would not lose the focus and lose the heart for what the whole intention is in the first place, that your gospel is good and that your kingdom is great and that your heart is for the peoples of the world. So I pray that as your people um, seek to respond to that, that we would do that, first of all, with your heart abiding and remaining in you. And then um, secondarily to that, that we would do this with great wisdom and with great care. Um, thank you for that. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to be able to do that well. We trust you to empower and enable that to happen in ways that would bear fruit, that would remain. Thank you, Lord. We trust you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to Crescent Project Radio. We believe we have a hope worth sharing. Learn more about Crescent Project online at crescentproject.org, where you can find all of our previous podcasts featuring testimonies from former Muslims, teaching and apologetics, interviews with ministry leaders and book authors, along with commentary on current events and ministry news. Email us your comments or questions to radio at crescentproject.org. Stay connected by subscribing to our bi-monthly email, Call to Prayer which is focused on prayer for the Muslim world. We hope you'll join us again next time on Crescent Project Radio.